Welcome to Inside Whitehall with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. Today we're looking at the lobby and specifically the written or what would generally be called the print side of that group of journalists who cover Westminster. They've developed over the past almost like 200 years, I think the lobby's been around. More than that, coming up to 250. Uh, and uh, and uh, they, ha- they hold a parliamentary pass, which means they're tasked with explaining the daily goings on in Westminster and covering politics and have more access than other journalists and, and breaking the news stories around that. And to do that, we have a leading, definitely leading member of the lobby who knows the beat inside and out. Pipakura has covered everything there is to in politics. I don't think that's unfair. He covered the whole of pretty much the whole of Boris's time for the Evening Standard as mayor. And well, and before that as well, I first entered the lobby in 2001. So yeah, the Blair, the Blair years, obviously I started when I was very young. Yes. And <laughs> um, the Blair years onwards, pretty much. Um, covering the whole of Boris work, and work, working across a variety of titles, Daily Mirror, and now political editor at the Guardian newspaper. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, Pippa, we always start with just how people got into their current job. And now I'm sure there's probably people listening because we have, we end up with quite a lot of students listening to the podcast who are wondering how to get in, how do you get into journalism and particularly the lobby? Well, I think it's really important to share that I didn't know anybody in this place. I had nobody, no contacts in journalism, no contacts in parliament uh, or in politics, no contacts in London, really, as you can hear from my accent, probably just I'm a Scot. Um, and so I ask myself the same question quite often. How did yeah. I get into it? And I think really it comes just from being a, with a, in a family that we're very engaged with uh, with uh, current affairs and news. Scotland has more heads, back in the day, Scotland had more newspapers per head of population than any other European country with all mm. the UK papers, but also the Scottish ones as well. My dad was an avid reader of those. Um, he was a printer, but not, unfortunately, of newspapers um, but he, you know, he'd always read it, read the papers in the morning before he went to work and leave them in the kitchen. And we'd all sort of, you know, scan through them at varying levels of interest, depending on how old we were. Um, and also I'm quite a nosy person. And I think if you're nosy and you want to know what's going on, yeah. that is actually a really good skill for a journalist because yeah. you're always intrigued by why something's happened, who's behind it, who's yeah. responsible. And those are the sorts of questions that I ask every day in my job just now. And so did, when you were like at, U, at uni, did, did you knew you wanted to be a journalist? I sort of went through an evolution of different subjects I was, uh, different sort of potential careers I was interested in. Um, but I did get involved in the student paper and I think a lot of people start off that way. Mm. I didn't do news for them. I did theatre reviews, mainly because it meant free tickets. <laughs> uh, and ever the, ever the canny student one eye on saving some money. Um, and, uh, and then when I went home for my, went back to Glasgow for my summer holidays, uh, I had a variety of jobs, including like everyone in bars and shops and so on, mm. but also, um, started off with some work experience with the Sunday times up there. They had an operate quite a big operation up there back in the day. And because I did it every holiday, just as an admin assistant, editorial admin assistant, uh, they eventually started asking me to come back and paying me to do it. And I got to write some articles. And then, you know, one thing leads to the next. Um, I ended up doing some work at uh, the Scotsman in Scotland on Sunday. At the time, Ian Martin was, uh, Mm. who's now Times columnist, was political editor. uh, And was sort of, I was in Edinburgh, but he was up and down the roads to Westminster and was really intrigued by the the world that he and then after him, Fraser Nelson, at the Scotsman as well, inhabited. You worked with um, Fraser as well. So no, Fraser was at Scotsman after, um, okay. but but you know it's the Scottish journalists I sort of knew best. Yeah. Um, and I thought you know this is actually something I'd really like to do properly as a career. So I, um, having already done my degree, which was English, but to be honest, you'd been better off doing something really practical like economics or a language or something that you can actually use. Yeah. Um, although I did love my degree, I should say. Uh, I decided to. Um, there was two routes available really back at that point. It was the late 1990s. You could either do what lots of my friends um, and my husband did, which was start at your local paper. Uh, he started at the Nielsen Leader, then then joined the Burnley Advertiser, then Lancashire Evening Telegraph, and then you know grew from regionals That's to a well-trodden um, path, a well-trodden it? path, and a much more traditional path actually. Mm. And then eventually up to the nationals. Um, but things had started to change by the time I entered journalism, and lots of people did these postgraduate courses, which were sort of nine-month courses with shorthand and law and you were sent out to try and find stories and you got to go into newsrooms and meet interesting people. I had my idea on the course, um, the City University course in London, but I couldn't afford it. I had no money. Um, and living in London, getting a flat, traveling around, being a student. So you couldn't re- you could do bits of work, but you couldn't work full time. It wasn't just going to be possible. So 
I applied to uh, various schemes, including one run by the Scott Trust, which ultimately owns The Guardian. And um, they, I passed various rounds of interviews and they basically paid for me, to, paid my course fees and paid for me a sort of a stipend to live in London, which, which topped up with money working, um, doing shifts in The Guardian. It was called Guardian Unlimited those days. It was the mm. online, you know, entirely separate oh, building yeah, and everything, yeah. entirely separate building. Um, I would do sort of uploading shifts in the evening, putting in journalists' copy into the into the website, um, <laughs> and uh, you know that managed to get me through that year. So um, it's a, I guess you know I did learn lots of practical skills that year, not least surviving in London, um, but also the benefit of being here is that Fleet Street is here and all the big newspaper offices are here, uh, the media's here, Westminster's here, and so it gave me the chance to to meet people and to start to sort of build those networks, which in my job. Are the be-all and end-all. It's all about who you know. Yeah, it's, it's a lot about contacts. You talked a lot, interestingly, about obviously the, the the Scottish journalists that you sort of referred to. Has that ever become like a grouping? Because in Westminster, there's no, as we all know, uh, which I'm part of one, I suppose. That we they love a grouping. Is that the same? Do you find within the lobby as well that you know that because you know you're from Scotland yourself, Fraser, yes. and Ian, that you know that sort of you collective, you share those stories about. That is quite a journey, right? It's a very big decision to yeah. come that far away from home to start up, like you say, doing evening shifts, trying to put in copy. Like, is that do you naturally sort of uh, come together? I think people do. I mean, th- there is uh, a Scottish lobby group. Um, I mean, the days when the I Scotsman is good. I bet that's good <laughs> the, the days when, like you know, the Daily Record had two people, the Scotsman had three people, the Herald had four people, are unfortunately long gone. Mm. Um, but um, one of my first jobs at Westminster was for the Daily Record. I was their Westminster person for several years, um, it, between about two thousand and three and two thousand and six, thereabouts. And um, they, for your English, for your English listeners, it's I guess it's kind of like the Daily Mirror in Scotland, mm. certainly by the same company. Um, and sort of a left-wing tabloid. And um, we, because we covered the same patches, at that point there was a lot of Labour Scottish MPs. It was like 50-plus yeah, Labour Scottish MPs uh, and no Conservatives in Scotland at that point um, and a handful of SNP and a handful of Lib Dems. And because we covered the same beat, we were interested in the same stories, um, we were focusing on matters which were reserved because of our colleagues north of the border would be focusing on the devolved matters, obviously, with the advent of the Scottish Parliament. We spent a lot of time together and then obviously we ended up socialising together uh, and that included STV and BBC Scotland and, you know, the, the other Scottish broadcasters as well. And, you know, we had sort of a WhatsApp group. We have an, an annual an annual uh, Christmas curry at Kennington Tanjuri. We have a quiz which, um, which uh, various people generally write. Um, Chokor Crichton, who was our... Um, uh, who was the Westminster editor at the record was kind of like our unofficial convener, but is now obviously standing to be a Labour MP in the Outer Isles. So he sort of stepped back from it. But it is a it's a really lovely network of people who um, either are Scottish, have links to Scotland. I mean, people like Katie Balls is a Scot, mm. Spectator, um, people who've worked in Scotland or people who've worked for Scottish uh, Scottish organisations, David Maddox and so on. Um, now at the Express. Uh, we, you know, we span broadcasts, we span, we span um, newspapers, uh, we span left and right, and you know, we have that we have Scotland in common, and it's something that we all still, I think, retain quite an interest about. And with obviously that Scottish link, I suppose, in the last, if you think since 2010, the biggest story affecting Scotland would have been, of course, that 2014 independence referendum. Was there a lot of pressure for you guys within the lobby who worked or came from Scotland to kind of explain? you know, devolve powers and the devolution and really get into that? Or yeah. was it, you know, just sort of, a, and educate the lobby, I suppose, as much as probably MPs who, you know, don't necessarily understand unless they are living and breathing it on a yeah. weekly daily well, basis? Well, the, the added challenge at that point, I was no longer working for Scottish paper. I, I was, um, in the, you know, I was at the, coming to the end of my stint with the Evening Standard, where I, the London Evening Standard, where I was for uh, uh, 10 years, more than 10 years. And, um, uh, but I did cover the independence referendum. I went up to Scotland, spoke to people, interviewed people like Ruth Davidson, the Tory leader up there. Um, got to know uh, the Scottish nationalists pretty well. Um, I had sort of felt I had a sort of quite a good um, Labour hinterland because they'd been in government when I first arrived yeah. in Westminster. There'd been so many MPs, and um, and some of them had gone to work you know, up to the Scottish Parliament. But uh, it was actually a really good way beyond, obviously, the really sort of existential issue of whether Scotland would be independent or not. In sort of my day-to-day career, it was a really good way of, of sort of expanding contacts and getting to know more people. 
um, people do sort of think about you as the expert on something. If you're yeah. from somewhere, isn't necessarily always the case. I'm sure there's people that knew more about the ins and outs of of the various, um, uh, you know, the various settlements that followed um, uh, that followed the independence vote. But obviously, it's one I covered and, and one which still today I'm fascinated about. You know how Scotland feels about independence generally. And so, starting on the kind of topic of the pod today, the print lobby, what? How do you see, what's the primary job of a paper? Because we've spoken to a few journalists on the pod now. And the thing that stuck with me is Kate McCann said on one of the first ones we did, which is um, that the job of print is to try and capture what's going to happen tomorrow because of the way obviously you're flowing into tomorrow. And the broadcaster's job is more what's explaining what's happening today, what is going on. I wonder if, is that how you see it or do you see it slightly differently and I mean, I guess online has changed that as well because you can drop things immediately. But what what's how, what do you feel the job of the of the print lobby is to do? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it I think it's our job to do all of that, and that's partly because of the expansion into digital. Um, that you know we break news as it happens. You know, the prime minister makes an announcement, or there's a, a Tory rebellion, or <laughs> who, who could, or there's who a reshuffle. I had no idea. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, who knows? Um, uh, or there's a, or there's a reshuffle or you know an event which happens right now um we obviously cover that uh digitally immediately for the website so in that sense i guess the similarities between us and broadcast um but of course it's also we have the space and the capacity to both take a sort of a broader reflective look on how things are mm. uh you know either with long reads whether they're on particular policy issues or sort of like a political phenomenon or looking at different parts of the country geographically um but also to try and find out what's going on and be first or terribly competitive be first to, to sort of break either incremental news or big stories and the 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 news um i mean there are obviously exceptions but for the most part the news broadcasters it is a lot about um you know analyzing and sharing insight on the story of the day mm-hmm. but of course there are investigative journalists on in broadcast as well and people i mean Sam Coates I think he's been on the podcast who's who's you know stock and trade is is breaking exclusives um everyone loves an exclusive line um so i don't think it's as clear cut as saying that you know broadcast is one thing and print does the other because of course we're no longer just print um our job, I feel, is to try to do all those different elements. And at each point, depending on what type of story you're covering, then, you know, you focus on covering the news in a different way. And Pippa, you've probably had a first, you know, front row seat to changes. It's probably in about the last two decades that we've seen the, that switch from really traditional print to those titles and competitors, you know, have to post and those kinds of things come in to switch to online like it was does it feel like that's happened happened incrementally over a couple of decades or was there a big moment where that switched no it's very incremental and also depends on who you work for Mm. so for years as i said i worked for the evening standard and when i first started for them in 2006 we had five editions and it was still like a quarter of a million people buying it it wasn't even you know it's obviously distributed now free um, based on print advertising, um, but it was it was uh, people were still spending fifty p or whatever it was to you know pick it up, and the first the first um, edition the deadline for it was seven a.m. So we had to be in the office by about five. Now you can wow. imagine there's not that many politicians who are up that time <laughs> in the morning, or indeed you know number ten or or um, the opposition parties keen to pick up the phone. So I very quickly learned that there were a few politicians that didn't mind being called, and one oh, of really? them happened to be Tessa Jowell who at that point was a Labour cabinet minister. I think she was culture secretary at the time. She was also a London MP, so there was a particular sort of in in that regard. And she used to go to the gym between six and seven every morning. So as long as we timed our call for when she was like on the treadmill and not on something more (laughs) strenuous, she was always happy to pick up her phone and have a chat. And then, you know, we could throw forward forward a story, you know, one cabinet minister said X, Y, Z, or even if she wanted to go on the record. And that was really, that was really helpful. So there's a few sort of choice choice uh did you to get on the treadmill next to her did it ever get to that stage no, right? sadly not um or maybe luckily not in my in my case but uh no it was always done over the phone um and then we had four more editions throughout the day but that was um still very print based mm. um and then different organizations moved at different paces and actually the guardian where i moved na- where i am now um i think was what was sort of ahead of the game really in the digital uh revolution and you know completed its transition from print to digital some time ago 
And um, so we have, obviously, we still have the newspaper. It is a, you know, it's a brilliant product. It's still read by very loyal readers right across the country. Like most newspapers, its readership is it sort of peaks towards the weekend. So Saturday is a big sales day. Um, and also like most newspapers, the days when every paper was selling millions of copies a day are gone. And, uh, you know, generally for the, you know, broad, broadsheets, they're not broadsheets anymore, but, you know, in terms of that size, quality quality papers, they tend to be down in the hundreds of thousands daily. Mm. Um, the the switch in readership to digital, uh, because The Guardian is, is not a subscriber mm. model, it's a, it's a sort of supporter model, and obviously based on advertising, it has huge reach. It's sort of 10 to 15 million readers a day. Wow. And because it's not behind a paywall, you know, I kind of laugh to myself when people like Suella Braverman talk about, you know, Guardian readers um, and Guardianistas or whatever. Mm. And presumably thinking of sort of like the stereotype of, that she associates with, you know, 100,000 people, 200,000, 300,000 people that, that read um, the newspaper version. Um, and uh, not realizing, I think, that that's not how people consume news now, really, across the board. People will dip in and out of stories depending on what comes up on their feed. Mm. And because The Guardian is accessible to all, which is a really sort of fundamental principle of the guardian's editorial position um it's read by all sorts of people all over the place all over the world so its reach is immense so i mean it's definitely been a big transition from the days where it was all about you know getting your deadline so that the paper can get off stone and, and get to the printers and then be distributed across the country to now where you press a button and three minutes later or 30 seconds later if it's a big story what you've written ends up on a screen being beamed into millions of people's smartphones and ipads and and laptops around the world. I like to think, Pippa, I've always been polite about The Guardian, but yeah. I will allow myself <laughs> I will allow myself to be fact-checked uh, for the next episode. And if I if I have indeed not... Then I'll be back. Then you'll be back and I will have to apologise. I do wonder, who, who would you have in mind when you talk about chai, latte drinking, avocado eating? You! You told us beforehand. This is... This is I love I have avocado. to say that there is this, for your, for your listeners, there's the classic... Um, you know, sound check that people do before <laughs> podcasts or before broadcast interviews. What did you have for breakfast? So mine was Weetabix and uh, banana. Jonathan's bacon was eggs. bacon and eggs. And tell us what yours was. Three scrambled eggs and avocado. Uh, right, so there you go. Oh, Stereotypes. Go. I know. <laughs> oh, the metropolitan elite. Here we are. I, I rally against them all the time, James. I would raise, one of them. I would raise two them. points, Jonathan. One, I'm not the member of parliament who's, I believe, the only person to have ever had chai lattes put on hand socks. Four times as well. And so. two, there's, there's, we're both sat on a sofa. There's only one of us from the sofa who's from uh, Stoke-on-Trent. So I'd also well, you're point League, so yeah, I think it'll... it's closer than Stratford. It's close. It's close to Stratford. I'll give you that mileage wise. Feel like I should be delivering copies of the Guardian <laughs> to my door every morning. Slip them underneath. With the um, obviously, you've become a political editor. How is it covering stories? Because it would be fair to say that there would be skepticism in terms of oh, the Conservative government isn't going to engage with the Guardian. It's going to go to its preferred be papers. Surprised. But this is what's really interesting. How do that would be probably the stereotypical view externally. But actually, what is the reality in, in regard to that? And how have you ever had to overcome kind of that natural skepticism of MPs? Or is it more just yeah. like a view external, but actually reality is very different? Special advisor. Yeah. <laughs> um, so before, I should say that between the Evening Standard and The Guardian, um, I was with the Daily Mirror for almost four years as well, uh, which is also of the left. Um, always and, left wing rags. Pippa, always oh, left -wing well, rags, you know, right? what can I say? Um, <laughs> you know, I know the best places to work, obviously. Um, uh, so I, um, so yes, you would expect that people wouldn't engage with us. And actually, um, I think you'd be surprised. I mean, at the Guardian at the moment, there are cabinet ministers who read the Guardian alongside other, um, alongside other uh, papers. Uh, for the, you know, get the news from a variety of sources, and there are plenty of backbenchers uh, that do as well. Um, so I see it in the tea rooms, Pippa, so you know. Well, they go to the paper rack, and I see the Guardian is normally one that comes up. It's, it's like a few colleagues who are really dedicated to read across like three, four papers in the mm. morning. Guardian is always one of them. Well, I mean, I think, I think the bottom line is this regardless of, of its editorial position, any media organization's editorial position, the Guardian is one which, um, you know, it's a serious heavyweight media organization that does serious news that you know looks properly into policy into foreign relations yeah we've got some fun stuff and light stuff too um but it's um you know it's it, 
we, we regard uh, accurate reporting and um, and uh, you know covering the big issues of the day and trying to be reflective of different voices, even though our editorial stance is obviously you know progressive. Um, you know we regard that as really important. So uh, you know it's a serious product. So if people want to know you know to hear it to read a progressive voice, if you like, then they know where to come to. Um, I did I did initially. Um, meet with some skepticism when I was sort of approaching Tory MPs from the mirror, but I think it divided into two categories. The Tory MPs I knew and have known for many years, um, who I had engaged with when I was at the Evening Standard, when I was, as James mentioned, following Boris Johnson around, um, who knew that I was, you know, fair and um, and straight and, uh, you know, was interested in getting to the story regardless of whether it was comfortable or uncomfortable yeah. for either party, um, and who I hope knew that they could trust me to have conversations and I would treat the information which they shared with me carefully. Um, and those who saw me as somebody that had, you know, broken all these horrible stories that put the government in a bit of a pickle when it came to came to Dominic Cummings and the Barnard Castle stuff mm. and then subsequently Boris Johnson and Partygate. And um and the former the former group is by far bigger because I think reputation also um, you know, people, you know, we live or die as journalists by reputation and people say, well, you know, she might be, she might work for the Guardian or the Mirror, but she's decent and trustworthy and, you know, is in, the, you yeah. know is in this as a journalist rather than um, as an activist, then, you know, word spreads and people will talk to you. But of course there are people that run a country mile when they see me that wouldn't reply to messages and would rather not engage. Is it fair to say then that, or is it, not fair to say, but could it be considered that some Labour MPs, for example, might take it for granted and just presume, oh, this will be a, a friendlier stance, like maybe come in maybe too relaxed in interviews. Actually, question. like you say, you're about integrity and honesty and journalism. You're about reporting the news. And so, you know, like some Conservative MPs might go on to the Telegraph and think, oh, that would be a potentially easier interview because yeah. that should start to make... Do Labour MPs ever fall into that trap of just presuming it will all be... Happy days. You ever get to leave the opposition's office going, how dare you attack Keir? Or is that is it that is, very um, uncommon? So I think actually that's a real challenge which uh, which I fa will face and my team face if Labour makes it into government after the next election. Because I feel very strongly that in the same way that we hold a Conservative government to account daily um, yeah. and you know and, and deeply. We need to do absolutely the same with a Labour government should they make it into power. And um, that might be, I, I don't know, because it's been so long since it's been a Labour government, mm. but that might be um, complicated by the fact that there's an expectation among some in Labour that because we're an organisation of the left, we should be supportive. But I suppose it's like the flip of the telegraph, right? Exactly. It's, it's you know, uh, or the mail, yeah. you know, yeah. we, we are there to represent our readers. Mm. We're not there to represent political parties. Yeah. And there will be stories that we write about things that politicians do on left or on right or in the middle, mm. um, which are uncomfortable for politicians. But that's not where we're not in the game of, of sort of, you know, writing something a certain way to do somebody a favor. I mean, absolutely not. Um, but it's definitely something I'm really conscious of as we sort of approach the election, that that's not what our readers want from us. And, and nor is it crucially what we should be doing. I think I mean it will it will happen if Labour come in that you know the, the Guardian or the Mirror will, will end up running front pages and editorials that the government don't like. I mean, it's in the same yeah. way that that happens. To be honest, last fairly time, regularly with well, with papers now. Yeah, last yeah. time I worked at the Daily Mirror, so I um, way back at the beginning of my career before I came into Westminster, I spent a couple of years working at the Daily Mirror in, in you know so two thousand two thousand and one, um, and then kept a very close eye on on. Um, on its coverage after that. And you'll remember the days when the Mirror was the biggest critic of Tony Blair's decision yeah. to take the country to war in Iraq. Oh, yeah. You know, it was, I think they were the only paper, weren't they? Initially, really, initially. Sort yeah. of took that stance. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I would say on the, on the kind of coverage, having done, having been a media spad, yeah, I think you're exactly right, Pippa, which is the truth. I mean, from my own experience, the truth is, um, one, editorial stances matter because often you're trying to land a story on an issue. Sure. So, um, for example, having worked in two departments, Home Office and DEFRA, actually they're good examples because a lot of Home Office stories, frankly, aren't going to be covered particularly well by The Guardian mm. or The Mirror. 
That's you say complete, particularly well, particularly well for the Tories. Particularly to well clarify. from my perspective right. at the time, yeah. as someone who wants yeah. to. No, I, I think they covered. I think they covered very well personally. Call but, uh, call <laughs> Finally, that, that is that is you, a you subjective. You on the pod. I've lived my favourite moment today so far. It's a subjective. Ah, uh, here we go. From my perspective at the time, uh, but the flip is true for Defra. Actually, there was lots of things we did at Defra. Yeah that uh, frankly were not necessarily massively popular all the time with some of the traditional conservative papers that were, I remember, I remember one specifically on, not many people will know this area, neonicotinoids, which are, I won't go into super detail, but hmm. uh, they're not good for bees. So people in the environment don't like them and we were going to move to ban them. And, uh, we, you know, that was a play, that was something that we did. Damien Carrington, who's at the Guardian, yeah. who's a fantastic mm. The um, big environment, environment team, it's, a, it's an area we cover extensively and, um, you know, got a big team doing it. And that's the other thing. Some papers have particular, so Damien um, and, and the, I can't remember the guy in the Times name. I should not have spoken to him loads. He was really good. But basically, you know, you had a couple of papers who had very prominent, their editorial uh, board would give them big prominence. Frankly, they could get a story on the front page of the paper yeah. and not all the other guys could. But at the same time. Did you always do that with the blessing of number 10? Getting on the front page of a paper. Were the number 10 happy to see that DEFRA was once again on the front page, uh, dominating the I think the, I think number 10 at the time were very grateful for positive coverage <laughs> of the government. <laughs> hey. um, but your point about trust is also that I think there's lots of times when you're discussing the daily goings on in government, mm. as a spad with someone like yourself, where you know that there's going to be different editorial stances, but all you ask for is that you're protected as a source if you're not yep. on the record. And that what you say is accurately reflected. So if the yeah. tone of the piece is, you know, government chaos and Brexit, but you know, someone said to you, like, what about this area? What about this? And mm -hmm. you're kind of, what the quote you've given or the, or the background you've given is fairly reflected and mm -hmm. not sneered at or not revealed. I think you, I personally felt I could always so that's, bother me. So that's why you're always a good spad because you, no, because you engaged. And I think it's always worth having lines of communication open with people, mm. even if they're how some might regard as being on the other side of the political fence. Um, because, you know, we want to know what's going on inside the Conservative Party. We want to know what policy the Conservative government's announcing. We want to be able to write stories about it. And of course, it will have like a Guardian or a Mirror or a Daily Mail or a Daily Telegraph or a Sun political bent on it, an mm. editorial bent, I should say, rather than political bent. But, um, you know, ultimately, we all want to get the facts right. And I think if you want to, as a SPAD, a former SPAD, if you wanted to make sure that your view was reflected, then you have to engage because otherwise we don't know what, yeah. you know, what your position is. So I'd always encourage special advisors to talk to us and, and to kind of, I mean, vast, vast majority of them know this. We've got good relationship, good working, professional, grown-up relationships with mm. them. Um, you know, we can sometimes do business. I think, because, you know, you do that lobby walk as a spad around the lobby. <laughs> um, yeah, you, I think you, you know, again, it's just... Explain the lobby walk, James, in case... So not is. everybody does it, actually. And you oh. were one of those that, and actually, I think special advisors now, very few do the lobby really? walk. You talk a lot to the media, James. Pretty sure on the pod, we've said quite a few times that... You didn't talk much to journalists, but you're one of the only ones who did lobby war. Papers <laughs> <laughs> sharing your credentials as a special advisor. Sounds like a lot of time chatting, my friend. That's well, his my, job. As a media special advisor, I would emphasize that was my actual job at the point at that time. No additional working hours, free of charge, is it? No, it's uh, you know all in the name of government business, Jonathan. That's good. To it, was always, it was always government business, and often we disagreed about stuff. Mm. But he'd come and had his say, explained why they were doing what they were doing. Don't be nice, Pippa. We might have said it was. I can't say words like that on the <laughs> But I think, I, think but the, I think the reason why, I, from my perspective, why going around that, so there's an area in Parliament, you've got your parliamentary passes, where the lobbies sit collectively and some have got different the rooms. press gallery, actually, yeah. The press gallery, essentially. And uh, you, so you can essentially, uh, it normally, normally takes you a good actual two hours to get around the whole. Trends if, if, you're, if you're like a gossip, if yeah. Like a, uh -huh. Which I definitely... <laughs> oh. Here we go. Not averse to a gossip myself. <laughs> um, it, but I I'm think... this episode a lot. Just so you know, the Chief Whip's shooting in as well. So we're getting on to you next. Oh, yeah, and you and the Chief Whip. Oh, That's what we're coming oh, to next. Yeah. Oh, here we go. And I think the thing, the one thing I do sometimes observe that people miss is um, big decisions or events. Actually, if you've explained them more in the run-up to them over the previous couple of weeks, you're able to like land what's going on a lot better with, with the lobby. 
it, it rather than on a day someone voting a certain way or something happening and then trying to explain that you're kind of slightly on the back Out foot. Of context, I think. yeah. Whereas if, if this, I mean, Brexit is a classic example, but I even think of something like Rwanda that's going on at the moment. If you're like explaining, even if you're an MP, frankly, explaining why you're undecided and so on, I think then if you vote a certain way when it's covered, the lobby know what you've what you've weighed up, mm -hmm. and so it's not seen as a snap. Just read this advice now. I was um, saying, is this a segue for Jonathan to tell us how he's going to vote on third reading the random <laughs> safety bill, which is about to what? go through the Commons? All yeah. options are on the table. Well, it's definitely a uh, whole that, that That's the on-the-record response. Yeah. The Australians will get the off-the-record response. Well, off the record, people. I'm sure the Chief Whip will suspect, if not, probably just guess anyway, because uh, <laughs> once we come off the recording... Yeah, you've got to make one, one right-wing Tory MP <laughs> <One right> said... <laughs> from the West Midlands. Yeah. You can go back over the Guardian copy and work out if there's anything. <laughs> <laughs> one, the, one thing I I think it's different by papers but when people read uh, the newspaper tomorrow they'll see or pick one up today they'll and we would say pick up a newspaper um, pick up support, a newspaper the, they'll see that there'll be you know your name or others and they'll have a title a political editor a deputy political editor how hard is that structure because you do have a senior broadcast cost quite a bit in print in particular you do all papers generally will have that structure on the political team mm -hmm. The political editor at the top, deputy, and then Whitehall correspondent or whatever. Like, do, is it the political editor's job? Do they run that team? Do they make the hires? And what's the, how does the high, high how does that hierarchy work? So every team's different, but the ones that I've worked in, um, it's uh, yeah. I mean, my my job is not just to find stories, uh, write stories, break stories myself, but also to manage the team. So to say to someone in the morning, you know, you're going to are you okay to cover this or could you cover this debate or could you cover that speech or could you dig into this issue equally as, as much as I go to them and ask them to cover sort of you know diary stories stories of the day um they'll come to me and say oh, I've had this tip and I'd like to spend some time looking into it um or I've got this great story or have you seen this line and um you know so it's a two-way communication but I kind of direct the day right. um, and I liaise with our news desk at HQ up at King's Cross speak to them multiple times a day, the news editor. As the day progresses, you know, first thing in the morning, we're talking about planning over the course of the day. We'll try and have a, a fresh story online round about lunchtime. Um, another one, maybe sort of like five o'clock. We'll have to, we put our front page story um, online quite early because most of our readers are online. Yeah. Some papers hold them back until, you know, 10.30 at night yeah. or whatever. <laughs> we generally don't do that. Um, there have been exceptions. Um, and in terms of the hierarchy, I mean, I guess I'm a political editor because I've been around a lot, broken lots of stories and a lot of people, but not everybody wants to take that route. I mean, there are people who are quite happy being, you know, who aren't bothered about the title, just want to be in the job and doing it that are, you know, extremely experienced and adept, um, journalists, uh, and each team's different in how that hierarchy is implemented. I'm very, I like to think that we've got a very flat structure. Mm. Um, I personally think that my teams have always worked better feeling that they're supported by me and that we're not sort of like an elbows out each man or woman to themselves operating in a silo to get your story over the line competing with your colleagues internally by all means compete the hell out of your you know your, yeah. your colleagues on other organizations but actually often you find if you know one person in the team gets a tip they can't stand it up themselves somebody else in the team says oh i heard something about that last week um, let me go back to my source and ask them. Someone else comes in and goes, oh, I've just had a lunch and this MP told me that. And then suddenly you've got a stronger story by virtue of working together. Yeah. And we do that a lot. We, we work collaboratively a lot on stuff to get it over the line. And I think our journalism is better for it, I have to say. Um, it obviously involves trust. Um, you know, we're sharing numbers left, right and centre with each other. We're sharing mm -hmm. intel left, right and centre with each other. Obviously, we don't say where it's from always because we all protect our sources and we respect that with each other. Um, but it's a very collaborative environment and also just makes more, more for like a fun, you know, working environment too. Everyone gets on and has a laugh as well mm. as dealing with the serious business of, of, you know, covering, covering politics and covering parliament. And how you, so I guess you'd have a kind of editorial conference in the morning or with the news editor. How early in the day do you get a feel? Let's, um, you know, we're talking on the, on a day today, this will probably go out in a couple of weeks, but where there's a big vote, it's probably quite obvious what the story is. But that's not mm -hmm. every day. No, not at all. How, do you, how are you making a decision about what's the thing you're going to, is that cover for, for you know the rest of the day and tomorrow? 
Well, I mean, you it's easy to plan around events like yeah. votes and speeches and trips and announcements. It's less easy to plan when stories arrive out of nowhere. And part of the challenge is balancing, you know, what would be the point, me today, breaking a massive exclusive, if it can hold till tomorrow, knowing that we've got a strong story lined up on the outcome of the Rwanda bill mm. uh, votes tonight. Um, so, yeah, you have to make that that judgment. Um, and it can change very, you know, you can be at, sitting there at sort of eight o'clock with one story on the front page and then suddenly that changes last minute because something happens, events happen. You know, they're hard to predict. That's one yeah. of the beauties of the job is that it changes every minute. I love that. Yeah. Um, it's exciting. Uh, but yeah, obviously all the time we know what projects we're working on at any given moment. I'm working on three or four exclusives, some big ones that if I get over the line will be, you know, a big moment. And some which are kind of like day to day, be a couple of days worth of story. Um, and so it's about managing all those different elements and picking when you tell the news desk so that you can work with them on getting a story into you know, past lawyers or into right. print uh, or into the website. Um, yeah, there's all those judgments that you make throughout the day. Out of interest, does the Guardian also struggle with lefty lawyers? If we hear about a lot in Parliament, do you also have lots of lefty lawyers to try and get your stories through as well? I couldn't resist it, could you? I couldn't resist it. It was sitting there. Our and, lawyers. And, and we know the day that it's on, and I was like, I couldn't resist. I'm I sorry, I have no that. idea whether our lawyers are lefty or not, but they're brilliant. <laughs> I, I imagine, well, I'm going to take a wild guess and imagine the lawyers that often the Guardian struggle with are very much not lefty lawyers. No, I, I know. It was, a, it was well a joke. Known. For everyone tuned in, <laughs> It was a joke. I know we live in a world where we can't make jokes, but it was a joke. <laughs> well, it's one worry. of the reasons why I get in trouble a lot not... <laughs> and I probably get splashed in the Guardian quite a lot as well <laughs> for those reasons as a, as a good hate figure maybe to click on for a certain, a certain audience uh, online. Are there, so are there things that you know definitely are going to play? Because on, on online, it's obviously you want to c cover things in a certain way and the, the, the title's got a certain stance, but there are nonetheless popular stories. I mean, I suppose... Is that something that's changed because of online is so measurable on individual stories about how, what the news desk wants covered? Yeah, though, actually, we know much more about different stories. And like most media organizations, we have um, a software that will both tell us um, how many people read a particular piece. Mm. Uh, I heard about a Where dwell time index. Well, it's, it, we, ours is gold clocks, but lots okay. of people are similar. So yeah. it's not just about, in fact, it's in terms of parity, which is most important. Yes, you need to get people in the door and reading your story or people on the site and reading your story. But it's also about how long they read it for. Yes. Yes. And so five clocks is like the gold standard. Five and if clocks. your piece gets read, you know, if you write a thousand words analysis and it gets read, it gets five clocks. And that means pretty much everyone's read it to the end, yeah. which is what you want. Whereas... What you don't want is people coming in, reading a story after three paragraphs, getting bored and moving on and getting one clock. Um, but it also tells you, I think, I mean, I think it's fascinating stuff because it tells you, um, you have the profile of your, your reader, where they've come from. So, you know, have, have they been surfing the internet or have they come directly to uh, the yeah. Guardian site or have they been referred from Twitter or mm. come from another site? Uh, you, you know, geographically where they are and not just internationally, but also regional, quite sub-regional breakdown within the UK. Um, if they're regular subscribers, you also know their gender, their age. You probably know about their profession um, and various other criteria. And all organizations have this, but it's such fascinating information mm. knowing which stories do well with which sort of yeah, groups of the population, particularly because, as I said at the beginning, the Guardian readership is so broad that it's not, you know, just one group of people. It's people from all over, with all sorts of different backgrounds, with actually all sorts of different voting patterns as well. Um, so... I, I mean, I love watching, see how well stuff does. Um, and I guess the, the sort of the, you know, the quick formula, if you like, of how well a story does is, um, it, it is I mean, it's, it's kind of really common sense that something which is extremely newsworthy, that is unexpected, that impacts people's lives in some way, that provokes opinions and, and conversations, tends to do well. And you, Jonathan, a question to you. You asked Pippa earlier about how MPs yeah. view titles. You know, do they look at, do, do, does, does a Tory MP come in and think, well, I shouldn't be dealing with the yeah, Guardian? Yeah. Quite, quite, did you think that then? So you came into Parliament four years yeah, ago. Yeah, 100%. I, I, I came in and just thought all media in general are out to get you regardless, and their job is to literally just destroy your career. 
And so it's best just never engaging with them. But you've, luckily, you've I mean, mainly done luckily, that yourself. Well, thank you, James. Well, luckily, I have a really good friend who's obviously a very talented media spad who's certainly given me a lot of lessons on how to get to build professional work relationships with the lobby. Uh, and I think that's changed. I mean, won't go in depth, but there was particularly a story whilst in my all very brief time as a minister that I felt that like was from a, 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 a trade paper that got picked up fairly by others. I'd actually called Pippa and said, oh, technically, actually, I said this. Pippa rightly said, definitively, who can back you up on that? We got it. And then Pippa kept the story up, but just slightly changed the way in which it was worded to accurately reflect what I said. Still meant that the Guardian kept his integrity, kept his story, but I felt that at least it was a fair reflection of a comment I made during the Conservative Party conference. So, you know, everyone was fine with that at the mm -hmm. end of the day. And I think that's where that, trust and relationship was built on and the fact that Pippa was able to verify that I think is really important. And actually, yeah, I think it's it's healthy for MPs to engage, to have justify and explain. And I suppose it was actually so weirdly, the time when I was doing a lot of media supporting Boris Johnson, uh, you know, through Partygate, uh, sort of one of the ones that was regularly put up, I suppose definitely on broadcast, but therefore giving quotes to print as well, you just naturally then start building that rapport and that relationship. And also the journalists figuring out, like, we know you've got to put a political stance on things, but how obvious, how honest are you being with what you're saying? Because I like to think with whenever I've said something, it's people don't look enough at what MPs aren't saying. Mm. And it's very easy for MPs to go, oh, I support this, but focus on a, maybe a micro area. And it's great journalists who fair like people who will go, that's fine, but what about this area that you're clearly avoiding? Mm. And what's that? Which therefore actually shows really where the MP is happy to tread a line, but feels that they can't mm -hmm. go and support the other uh, maybe aspects of it. And I think that's what's most, that's what people should look out for. Mm -hmm. What's the MP talking about? And what's the other part that maybe the other part that others are using, but they're not using themselves. Mm. And that shows maybe where the divide is because good, honest MPs would actually defend what they believe in, but leave out bits that they don't. And I've certainly had to do that with certain policies, certain things that I've liked, like social care was something I was like, Yes, we need to reform it. I wasn't happy with the having to introduce a new tax for it when Boris did that. So I talked about only ever the need for social care reform, why we need social care reform, and just avoided at all costs ever actually giving a comment specifically on do you think the way to fund it is through a tax increase? And I think that's an example there where MPs can engage. But yeah, I definitely came in, was sceptical of all. Then you thought, sort of, okay, well, I'll talk to the Telegraph or the Times and the Sun because maybe now you've got the Guardian on speed dial. Now I've, yeah. got, now I've got the Guardian on speed dial. So you know this is the and who and who knows? I might he doesn't well, after by the tonight's way. vote. After tonight's vote, you know, will I be a Conservative MP? Who knows? So we'll uh, I might have. I mean, Is they threaten to remove the whip? No, that, that again, this is a joke. This is a joke <laughs> for the chief whip. It was a joke. But a question for you, Pippa. It, I think it, sometimes the media does face criticism in the way it covers politics, mm -hmm. which is to say you, often you here you know why aren't why don't mps kind of be more open and ex explain what they're doing and so on but at the same time i think they would be worried that when they try to have nuance there's a kind of an attempt to catch them out so you know well, a cheap example yeah i was on the uh, i was on the business trade select committee we had alan bates and joe hamilton from the post office scandal mm. i was frankly honest and apologized for not having watched the itv drama and then just made in what was a very heavy session to try to make a light high comment that I've got two young children who demand that I watch Paw Patrol with them. And if I'm lucky, I, if they're lucky, I fall asleep before they do and therefore don't get them into bed. I pick up papers or, you know, so, so things like the Huffington Post, the, the Mirror, sort of more of a tabloid, and they're going, oh, they're leaning into that angle. Mm. And I found that deeply frustrating because actually I asked a very serious, serious series a very serious question, having read hundreds of pages of briefing. And so as an MP, I'm there going, well, people demand for us to be honest. I wasn't jumping on a bandwagon. and I was literally saying, I must be one of the only people in the country not to watch it. I'm really sorry. When, and now the lesson is, well, actually next time, just don't be frank with people because you're just going to get your grief on the front page of even now my local paper and having to explain on local media. But do you have any sympathy for that, Pippa? My God, we're all human. Of course yeah. I do. Yeah, we all make jokes and we all sort of say things that we regret. I mean, advantage that you and I have, James, is that we're not public figures yeah. paid for by the taxpayer to represent constituents. Mm. So they get, I think, get held to a different level of yeah. accountability, mm. rightly. Yeah, um, absolutely. But, you know, 
I mean, I think that's where going back to sort of like the trust and the relationships comes into it. Because I think if you have relationships with journalists, um, while they will shouldn't they should never do you any special favors. Absolutely. They will pick up the phone and have a conversation with you if you explain that you know that was a joke about War Patrol and blah 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 blah. Um, and you know you might be able to impact the coverage in, in you know in that way, or at least have the opportunity to sort of have your say in response, or the next day, or you know to sort of you know counter it and and get you know your serious point covered. Whereas if you don't know people, it, that's harder. And I do have great sympathy for people that arrive in Parliament. It's not actually just Parliament; it's any area of public life. And indeed, lots of the public who are very skeptical about the media. We haven't always covered ourselves in glory as an mm. institution, an organisation. Um, but you know, there are lots of very decent, principled journalists out there yeah, um, who are trying to get you know to the heart of information that they think their readers or their viewers want to see and hear. And of course, that doesn't happen all the time. Um, but in the same way that I will regularly defend MPs and say, no, they're not all the same and they're not all out to rip off the taxpayer. And yes, there's some high profile examples of people that have, you know, maybe done things and said things that they shouldn't. The vast majority of people are out there to represent the constituents and sometimes campaign on really important issues. Equally, there are some examples of journalists where they haven't behaved properly and that have stitched people up and that have sort of like twisted words and all the rest of it. The vast majority of us don't. And one thing I'm always conscious of is that if you um, if you misrepresent somebody or if you inaccurately report something about somebody or something, then people will think twice about coming to you in future. And you know, I said earlier, reputation matters, trust matters. If they don't think that you are, um, you know, a reliable journalist, a person of integrity, then they just won't bother. And you know, we rely on our contacts. Mm. And, people talking to us to do our job. I think with a lot of journalists, if you if you have the relationship of trust, which you talked about in the beginning, where you can say, look, this is the truth of it. You know, this is what's going on. And they, because the flip side that people forget is, as a special advisor, I think, or as an MP or a minister, or as a grouping, you know, number 10, the leaders off, the opposition leaders mm. office, if you start lying to them, you can't have that conversation because they don't believe no, you. No, exactly. And that was the problem, actually, ultimately, that Boris Johnson's number 10 got into. And I, you know, throughout that whole period of doing these, of doing these, of breaking the Partygate story and, and the subsequent stories, um, you know, I obviously had regular conversations with, with people inside Downing Street and across government. And I hope, well, I hope they weren't spinning me a line when they say that even though they hated the stories, mm. Uh, they respected the fact that I had that I was doing my job and I was doing it professionally, and I always let them know what I was going to write so they could comment in advance. I never, I didn't write anything which was factually inaccurate. Sue Gray report. I remember reading it as it came out, and literally it vindicated every single line of our reporting mm. in terms of factually. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's different views on on how things were you know, perceived at the time. Yeah. Um, but it was all factually accurate, and I, and I, I think number ten recognize that or the certain people in number 10 recognized it maybe not the whole institution mm. um and that's what i've always tried to do to be professional it's hard though i mean obviously i wasn't in number 10 it's hard when the story is so close to your door yeah. to keep perspective because it well, it's hard both ways i mean i have people in downing street who i've known for you know half of my life yeah um that's i mean i'm quite church and state about having friends in yeah. government and out of government but the people that I enjoy spending time with, go for beer with, yeah. have you know long-standing professional relationships with, and I'm not just talking about Partygate, but I write stories which make life quite difficult for them, mm. and that's in the Labour Party and in the Conservative Party and actually outside of politics too. You've mentioned Boris Johnson. I'm keen to know what was it like <laughs> covering him as Mayor of London and the GLA, therefore the Greater London Authority. Sorry for those listening compared to Westminster, how different is it? Because ultimately, it's a devolved power. It's a very significant devolved power, one of the largest that we've known, and has now been a basis for other regional mayors outside, you know, Teesside, the West Midlands, mm -hmm. and obviously Greater Manchester. I suppose, in essence, because you lived and breathed that devolution up in Scotland, was it easy to sort of understand how to portray that story of London's ability to self-govern in certain areas and be held accountable, but also Boris himself and building that relationship with your role in the Evening Standard, which obviously would have been a major newspaper for the Mayor of London mm. to land stories that they hope were positive, but also have to uh, come back at stories that were not going to be helpful to mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so obviously it's a big institution with a big budget, but actually the power of the mayoralty and the GLA um, is limited to some quite specific areas. It's a lot of control over transport. It has oversight over policing, over mm. not control, obviously operationally that's down to the Metropolitan Police. Um, it had some economic powers. Um, and then there were some other areas that, you know, they kind of branched into. Housing obviously was a, a big one as well that they're responsible for, um, as are local authorities up and down the country. Um, but what I've al always felt about the Mayor of London in particular, and actually that has been emulated since with people like um, like Andy Burnham in Manchester um, and other mayors elsewhere, uh, is that they were more powerful by virtue of having individuals in that role who were big characters, force of personality. I mean, Ken Livingston, Boris Johnson, Sadiq Khan have all been, uh, have all managed to make the role bigger than uh, it might otherwise have been, had more power because they've used it as a, um, a platform um, to push for action um, and uh, internationally as well as in the UK. I mean, I, when I first started covering Boris Johnson as mayor, uh, it was just as, through the, the financial crash and in the immediate aftermath. And he did an incredible job of going around, in his words, banging the drum for London, sort of an ambassadorial role, yeah. trying to get boost inward yeah, investment um, from overseas, but also sort of, you know, other parts of the UK. He was also mayor during the Olympics at a time when actually London culturally was was kind of booming. It was very sort of feel goods, and you know Boris's personality reflected that really well. Um, and he the was flag and stuff like that, all yeah. of that stuff. And he was, um, you know, he it was and is very charismatic. Um, so he um, and he's, you know, he's the first conservative to win London twice. Only, only conservative to win London twice, or mm. to win London at all, mm. um, in a city which is your broadly regarded, certainly the, the inner bit of London as, as being more left-leaning. Um, but he basically presented himself as Boris Johnson first and a conservative second, almost like an independent. Mm. And he was, you know, at that point, he was he was sort of a liberal one-nation conservative who was socially liberal, you know, yep. called for an amnesty for 80,000 yeah. refugees he in did. London, um, you know, supported rape crisis centres. People really centers. forget that, don't they? People really um, forget that, yeah. that, that, that view, sorry, you said there about Example, we know he's come out publicly supporting the amendments, but actually as mayor of London would have had a very different stance. Very different. And I mean, part of that, and, and that, that, all of those things about Boris Johnson's character, I'm sure, I mean, I've not seen him in yonks, but I'm sure that's still part of his character. But there's all the other bits now as well. And I think the, the big question, I remember standing with some of his closest advisors, one of his closest advisors who, um, who he remains close to now um, and has worked with him, you know, all the way through from on and off from GLA to, to when he was in Downing Street, um, saying, you know, Boris is great. They said, Boris is great. In fact, we're standing not far from here um, outside the Red Lion pub just around the corner. Oh, yeah. um, Boris is great, but um, you wouldn't want his finger on the nuclear button, would you? I mean, it sort of had a right old laugh about it because that mm. was the days when he was mayor of London and you wouldn't expect him to come back to Parliament. Um, but it, it sort of symbolized to me the transition to a very different type of role. And Boris Johnson was an incredible politician, but I think a very poor governor. Mm. Um, and I'm sure you'd have different views on that. But, um, you know, I think he somehow managed to sort of rewrite the narrative about um, himself. He was a political chameleon. He was able to win over the Red Wall. He was sort of like the Brexit figurehead. He was incredibly different on all sorts of issues than he was when he was mayor of London. If Boris Johnson, he's a liar, he's a whatever. Um, clearly, there's more to him than that. But um, I think he... He ultimately was not uh, the right person at the right time um, to lead the country uh, for that period from 2019. And ultimately, his way of handling politics, his his political emphasis rather than his policy focus, um, and his response to kind of double down, deny, obfuscate, lie, um, which sort of permeated down through his operation, ended up bringing him down. Out of interest, do you think... You ever saw any of that when he was in the GLA? Because, for example, I think, again, yes, his electoral successes are absolutely untold, but, you know, people who have been in the GLA when, GLA when Boris was there, it's easy to forget, that actually, his first two, three years were pretty rocky in his first Chaotic. term. And there was a lot of people saying, a lot of his own members of the GLA were going, can this guy actually stay on? So he Should had, he be? So and, then, the system... and then this sort of a new team was put yeah. around him, which essentially seemed to 
galvanize and give him and then the olympics was kind of the the, talk the system worked for him because for the gla and i think this is what he thought when he first came into government with the cabinet you, he could be like the chairman and then he'd have series of he's, he was mayor and he'd like chairman and a chief executive so mm. he had like he was mayor and then he had like a deputy mayor for housing a deputy mayor for transport a deputy mayor for crime a deputy mayor for business you know various other areas um and they did the sort of the day-to-day management they did the the policy process they did the you know he was the figurehead he's the one that was the voice that made the big announcements that the salesman, met people right? the salesman aha uh-huh, the ambassador the salesman depending on which way you view it probably a bit of both um but that system didn't work for for government here you needed to be more across the detail you needed to be more interested actually in the detail you needed to be able to not just make the big political promise but actually have something fundamental beneath it that you could deliver on um and for him his success as mayor was partly because as you say the people around him i'm not sure he got necessarily the right team um but ultimately you know responsibility lies with him right and mm. Because a lot of the Westminster bubble, maybe pe- names that the public don't know, but any Lister, for example, is now in the House of Lords, always gets a lot of credit for having come in and kind of taken that chief executive role, as it were, to like, you know, get across the detail to monitor what's going mm-hmm. on. Obviously, other uh, loyalists who like Ben Gascoigne is now in the House yeah, of Lords Manier as well. Yeah, went to, uh, you know, so. Like, Harry. Yeah. Exactly. So it's just quite interesting, isn't it, that kind of transition. And it was just fascinating to hear how, you know, like you say, actually the, the role and how, other mayors have now really copied that movie. Andy Street, I think, was a classic yeah, example yeah. of someone who Andy Street sells himself as Andy Street. The Conservative is sort of tucked away small. Andy Burnham in Greater Manchester will likewise push Andy Burnham and Labour's kind of small. So they're picking up votes from non-traditional voter bases, but saying, I'm the ultimate champion of our local area and I'll defend it to the hills, regardless of who's in government. I don't mm-hmm. care because I'm really your, your man or your woman. Yeah, uh, to be, uh, but also they, they, what they have all done successfully is what Boris Johnson did in London, which was to say that they ultimately they were mayor for all, you know, their whole city, regardless of the, you know, the political complexion. And that changed with Brexit with Boris Johnson because he had to pick a side. Yes. And not only did he pick a side, but he, um, I think he, he pushed populist, I'm not sure to say his instincts, but he, he pushed a sort of populist approach and he um, and he became very divisive, and uh, I think he would have. I mean, I always remember him talking about you know, when he came in in 2019, saying that yes, we need to unify the country and we need to make sure we bring people back together. And thinking, oh mate, you're the one who sat there and you know caused women MPs to cry in the House of Commons. Remember when he was flown back from New York for this of the Supreme Court ruling when his prorogation of yes. Parliament was found to yes. be illegal, and it was all sort of you know everyone was tired and it was all sort of very frenzied and all the rest of it. But he was so aggressive in that in the, in the House of Commons, and I, and then you know days later was saying oh we need to bring people together, and it's like come on, it's incumbent on our leaders to set the tone of national debate, and I think he failed at that point, and I think he never recovered in terms of the division. He was never ever again going to be able to be you know, the sort of liberal, socially liberal, fun-loving Boris Johnson that people kind of, you know, generally regarded with a degree of affection. You think you had Anthony Wells from YouGov do a, uh, a discussion around polling and he explained how Boris, during his time as mayor, had become like this sort of celebrity-type figure, so therefore was viewed by the public not as a politician, which normally is viewed as negatively. However, coming into government, coming into Downing Street, instantly perceptions are starting to flip of I'm now going to judge you by the standards of a politician not by sort of the level rogue sort of celeb type outside and inevitably was always going to mean as in Anthony's terms that popularity was going to to drop over time because he was going to be viewed through a different lens by the wider public is that you're you're sort of in that yeah I mean it's people being up with a different standard but it's also him coming under much greater scrutiny um, and having much more impact over issues which policies which affected people's lives and making big promises i mean winning the 2019 election not just on the back of get brexit done i mean let's not relitigate the brexit argument but crucially um, i think getting it right on the whole leveling up agenda and realizing that you know there's economic disparities across the country which needed to be addressed but never quite articulating what leveling up was going to be so that it could be many things to many people mm. and then uh, people thought well this is this is what he's going to deliver and they felt let down because it wasn't delivered the thing that they thought leveling up was going to be. So 
you know, brilliant salesmen, but not enough substance. I mean, I, I think, I, I think the thing with Boris that, I mean, I think you could level out all politicians, to be honest. They're kind of, because it is catch-all. I mean, look, um, not to, to deliver stories as Tory soundbites, but Keir Starmer at the moment is saying, well, we need change in politics. That's his whole speech was really change. What to what? It, there's no, there isn't, I don't think there's any policy there. Um, and I'll I agree. send you a copy of his five missions. It's, <laughs> it's, I, I, I mean, I've, for work, I've looked at his five missions a lot. I still don't know what any of the policy are. But I think that's the same with all of them. I think the thing with Boris, though, look, he's one, he's going to, whatever you think of Boris, and obviously, like, you know, I feel I've got some skin in the game because I was on, on vote leave and I was in, you know, part yeah, of Boris's government. I think he will go down as one of the exceptional politicians in British history. Ah, uh, exceptional is a good word, isn't it? Because it can mean it can mean both exceptionally brilliant and exceptionally awful. <laughs> it's, but all politicians are viewed like that. So Tony Blair, for the for, there'll be there'll be huge groups of people who think, well, let's bring back Tony Blair tomorrow. He's brilliant. And for but for most of the population, Tony Blair will always be known for an illegal war. So let me turn the tables on you two. Do you think Boris Johnson will make a comeback? I mean, none of us thought David Cameron would. Do you think we've seen I, the end of him in national politics? Look, maybe I've been too close to it. I, I just, whenever you have that conversation, I'm always like, I've never ruled him out. Because <laughs> I remember... Yeah, look, I'd, I'd I, be scared I, to rule it out entirely. So I, I'll give, I, um, as both of you know, I mean, listeners wouldn't know, I resigned from Theresa May's government over the Brexit deal, over, over the Northern Ireland Protocol in particular. The first person I saw was Boris and uh, a friend of mine who worked for Boris at the time, Lee Kane. And I walked from DEFRA over to Boris's office, not far from here in Normanshaw North. And he was incredibly, he said, oh, it's just like when I resigned recently, I was thinking, no, it's not really the same, Boris. Like, I'm a random nobody who's <laughs> just about made it onto Guido and you were front page news. But he was really sweet about it. And at that point in time, Boris had resigned as foreign secretary. After a few months, everyone said, this guy's done. People were saying that then. Yeah, I remember. They written, they, he was written off completely. And... If you'd have said to someone in that moment when, you know, I was just sat in this office with the guy who ended up a few months later as you know, all-powerful PM with a massive majority, that we were just sat in this office reading the newspapers. Um, oh, in nine months, he's going to be PM, but he'd have mm. won an election with an 80 majority. Uh, people would have laughed at you. Mm. And so for me, on my, you're always based on your personal experiences. Like, having seen it that close... You'd oh, say, never, say never, say never. Never say never. What about you, Jonathan? I would say the same, never say never. I mean, he has come to visit me once in Stoke-on-Trent North since having left um, office. I think he, I think he'd also no longer remain, he was no longer the MP at that stage. I yeah. think he'd left as well. And it blows my mind to watch the public response and reaction. It's to a celebrity. Mm. And, you know, li and no joke, people leaving a local shop because in the cashiers to come get a photo whilst customers are queuing to pay people driving in from everywhere in fact the, the largest turnout i've had today of any campaign does rishi sunak have the same impact when he visits you so i've not actually had rishi directly to the patch i've had rishi to um rishi's come to spode where he talked about us getting the 56 million for leveling up we did a business roundtable engagement session there so i haven't had rishi walk the streets and i suspect i've not help myself and getting higher up the priority list. With, uh, recent, no, no one has, no, no one has. Like, but, I, but I would say, no I don't think you'll, I don't think I'll in my lifetime as a politician, I really can't think of anyone else. The closest person genuinely in my constituency, this would mm. be an exception, is Nigel Farage. Mm -hmm. He came so, to my actual constituency, he did part of his, uh, one of his shows from there. And again, yes, that audience would have, of course been people who are more favorable towards him, but the reaction to him and the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everyone hanging around afterwards. It was it was really quite extraordinary. There aren't very many politicians that have, I mean, call it what stardust, call it, you know, mm. X Factor, whatever. Um, you know, Tony Blair had it, Boris Johnson had it, Nigel Farage had it, Nicola Sturgeon had it in Scotland. Oh, 100 um, percent Ruth Davidson had it. Uh, Ruth Davidson had yeah, it. She I did. mean, there are there are others as well, but um it's, but it, it's I think it's a sort of a capacity to it's charisma, obviously, but it's also a capacity to make people feel that you understand their lives and that, that and that you're relatable, which actually is is a bit weird given Boris Johnson is like you know Eton, Oxford, you know probably as much a part of the establishment as you know as anyone. Mm. But we're out of time. Final two questions for you, Pippa. 
Number one, as we were on the topic, do you think Jonathan has the stardust? <laughs> capable? Is he a celebrity? <laughs> oh, what's your problem? <laughs> Every pod, there's always a let's go. And number two, as we've asked everyone who's come on, you know, all. Are me and Jonathan ready to get our parliamentary press passes? You know, the new media that we call well, well, I would always say that, you know, politicians can't become or, you know, political figures shouldn't become uh, journalists. I mean, plenty have done it the other way around, of course, including your your hero, Boris Johnson. He wasn't a reporter, not at least in the sense that I, I would Michael regard a reporter. But he, but he uh, was a columnist. Mm. Michael Gove's done it. Um, Matt Warman, who obviously mm. used to be in the pod as well. Yeah, yeah, but fewer have done it the other way around. But you could be first. Why not? Give it a go. There you go. We're a welcoming bunch. The new, the new media. On that bombshell. Um, well, look, big thank you, Pippa, for everything you shared and all your you views. Thank you for having me. And it's been great to hear it. And everyone, I hope, will give us a rating, give us a review to let us know your thoughts. You can do that, obviously, however it is you're listening to your podcast by clicking subscribe and then leaving that rating or review and letting us know on Twitter, now known as X, at Whitehall Pod UK. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks.